Hello and welcome to the third episode of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics with your hosts Peter Leggi and Peter Lim. We are podcasting from the campus of Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. In today's first segment, I, Peter Leggi, will reflect on the 2008 African Nations Cup recently completed in Ghana. In the program's second segment, we talked to South African media scholar Sean Jacobs of the University of Michigan about media and democracy in Africa. We will also talk with Jacobs about blogging and about mainstream Western media coverage of Africa. Well, the African Nations Cup ended in Ghana this past Sunday. And last time, I gave you my predictions. Well, ESPN and Sky Sports won't be calling me anytime soon. While I correctly predicted the four semifinalists, I went on to screw up the semifinal matchups just by not reading the schedule properly. Oh well, so it goes. But to make matters worse, the elephants of Ivory Coast, whom I had picked to win the cup, were crushed 4-1 to by Egypt in the semifinals. The goals were scored by Fatih in the 12th minute, Zaki in the 62nd minute, Keita made it 2-1, scoring for Ivory Coast a minute later, and then Zaki made it 3-1 for Egypt in the 67th, and the hero of the tournament for Egypt, Abu Treka, scored in the 90th minute. In the final, Egypt met the indomitable Lions of Cameroon, who had been 1-0 winners over hosts Ghana in the other semifinal. In that game, Ghana's heedless defending led to a counter-attack goal by Alain Kong in the 71st minute. Nkong had just substituted in a few minutes earlier, and, should be noted, he had played for Colorado Rapids in Major League Soccer in 2005-2006, and now this 28-year-old Yaounde player is at the Mexican club Atlante. So while Cameroon did just enough to win, the Black Stars of Ghana squandered the few chances they created. Junior Agogo may have the best name in football, but he looked like a man who couldn't even finish his own breakfast that day. With Chelsea star Michael Essien covering for absent John Mensah, the team captain, in the middle of the defense, and Udinese striker Asamoah John a late scratch from the lineup, Ghana's attack was predictable and easily stymied by tough-minded Cameroon. The final took place at the Ohene John Stadium in Accra, and it was a rematch of the opening contest in Group C, which had been won by Egypt four goals to two. In the final, Egypt seemed more purposeful and creative on attack. They continued to be tightly organized on defense, and they did not allow Samuel Eto'o, the star of the Cameroonian team, to explode in the transition game. And I think that Cameroonian goalkeeper Idris Kameni's performance as the best player for Cameroon was surely an indication of Egypt's overall dominance. Kameni made two outstanding saves on point-blank shots from Emad Moteab in the first half, and another excellent one in the second half on Abd Rabu's 25-yard blast. The turning point in the game came in the 77th minute, with the teams tiring a bit and play increasingly choppy and rough. Cameroon defender Rigobert Song, playing in his seventh Nations Cup, made a catastrophic mistake. Instead of clearing a harmless ball away, he made two clumsy touches and allowed Mohamed Zidane to eventually steal the ball from him and play it to Mohamed Abutrika just inside the box. And Abutrika coolly struck the ball into the bottom corner past a sprawling Kameni. This proved to be the winning goal. Now, Mohamed Abutreka is a very interesting player. He's a star for the Egyptian club El Ali, which is probably the best team in Africa, and the Egyptian national football team as well. 
He has been dubbed by some the Egyptian Zinedine Zidane for his technical brilliance and also for his great vision on the pitch. He's also been nicknamed the Smiling Assassin by some media because of his two trademarks of goal scoring and smiling. And he's also a footballer with a social conscience. After scoring a goal in Egypt's 3-0 win over Sudan earlier in the tournament, Abu Treka removed his jersey to show a t-shirt that read, Sympathize with Gaza. And this was, of course, in reference to the tens of thousands of Palestinians that had streamed into northern Egypt uh, on Wednesday, January 23rd, after the barrier that separates Gaza from Egypt had been breached due to the blockade by Israel after rockets attacks from Gaza had taken place. Abu Treka, interestingly, was given a yellow card for breaking FIFA's rule against displaying political slogans and also was severely reprimanded by the Confederation of African Football. But in the end, Abu Treka was the star of the tournament. The Egyptian coach, Shehata, also won the second consecutive African Nations Cup, matching the performance of C.K. Gyamfi of Ghana, who won the tournament in 1963 and 1965. So hats off to the repeat champions, the pharaohs of Egypt. They were rapaciously opportunistic on attack, stingy on defense, and got amazing goalkeeping from Essam al-Hadari. In this case, the best team definitely won. And in two years' time, the African Cup of Nations will be held in Angola, just a few months before South Africa hosts the greatest sporting event on earth, the 2010 World Cup. Well, today we're joined by Sean Jacobs, a South African assistant professor of African-American and African studies and communication studies at the University of Michigan. He's the author of uh, several articles and numerous edited volumes, including Tabombegi's World, The Ideology and Politics of the South African President, published by Zed Press and the University of KwaZulu-Natal Press in 2002, and currently working on a book on media and democracy in post-apartheid South Africa. Welcome, Sean. Well, thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, I grew up, I was born and grew up in Cape Town in, in South Africa. I was born in 1969, which makes me a little older now. And I, you know, went to school in the, the sort of segregated school under apartheid and went to the University of Cape Town in the late 1980s, which I think perhaps that's where sort of I became politically of age. Um, in what was going on at the University of Cape Town in the late 1980s? I mean, it was, you know, late apartheid. It was the, the, the South African government, I suppose, had figured out that you know, they couldn't maintain apartheid for probably, in sort of Ian Smith's terms, another thousand years. The resistance against apartheid had, I think, reached sort of a plateau. They would not be able to defeat the apartheid state, but the apartheid state was also sort of, you know, sanctions, the white population that was restless and so on. And at the University of Cape Town, there was emerging kind of what we called non-racial politics, which was very much the politics of the ANC. Um, and I was, you know, a member of the student, the alternative student newspaper. That's kind of where I got my interest I in see. media. And I think that's sort of where I, we, we can maybe talk about that later, about sort of my relationship, I suppose, to the ANC, a kind of organic, both kind of a love-hate relationship, I think, started then with the, the African National Congress. But, uh, and on the other end, as I was born in a work in very much working class Cape Town, I came to the U.S. Uh, in 1995 on a Fulbright scholarship to study um, political science at the Northwestern University in Evanston, in Illinois. But after one year I left because Nelson Mandela had become president a year before. 
and I felt I wanted to be in South Africa, be you know part of I, what I thought was a very was definitely an exciting period in South Africa's history. And now you're yeah. well known in the world of blogging as as Leo Africanus. And uh, why did you start blogging as Leo Africanus? And then who's your audience? What's your experience like? I mean, I wouldn't say that the you know that I'm already like a big blogger. There are other bloggers I think that are you know sort of blogging on Africa, like Kenyan Kenyan pundit is a very popular and big blogger. There's a number of bloggers, particularly around the Mainland Guardian, the South African newspaper, right. who have done well. There's a blogger in New York, Tony Caron, who's a time uh, editor at Time Magazine, who I think is an excellent blogger. So I'm just starting with this. Um, Leo Africanus, why I picked that name? Leo Africanus is, for people who don't know, he's a 16th century uh, diplomat um, in the court of the Sultan of Fez. And he was kidnapped by pirates, taken to Rome, where um, it's unclear about you know what was the nature of his relationship with Pope Leo, um, I think Leo the Tenth, and he I think it was sort of advisory. It was a kind of um, you know people view him as either a charlatan, other people think he's a reporter. Some there's a book that's called he's a, was you know kind of the way he maneuvered. Uh, I think it's called Tricksters. I forgot the title about it, but he ended up writing a book called The Description of Africa, which is sort of a mixture of you know uh, made up stuff truths, half-truths, etc., and dealing with European stereotypes of Africa. And I felt that living in the United States, you know, I'm not in South Africa anymore, but I, as I, I study media, and I felt that the, the thing I could do best was to monitor regular news about news about Africa and sort of taking the persona of Leo Africana. is a little ambitious, but I felt, you know, it fits where I am. He travels, um, he picks up things. I also lived in London briefly. So I felt, you know, maybe I could bring that to the table. The readers that come to the site, they primarily, because of the nature of the Internet, they are based in the U.S. Most of the readers come from the U.S. A couple of readers in Western Europe. And, of course, because of the way that the web works in Africa, people's access to the Internet, particularly from South Africa. Um, I just actually found out one of the regular, just to, like, you know, tell an anecdote of one of the readers. There was a regular reader who who, uh, named himself Ibn Batuta, (laughs) who you also know is another... Uh, traveler of sorts and he always had you know very biting comments on some of the stuff I put on the blog and recently um, I met him and it turns out he's he's a, it's a writer a Nigerian writer Teju Cole who's written a, um, a sort of fictional kind of a memoir of a visit that he took to back to Lagos and we're now talking me him and another blogger who's in in Berkeley California Koran Teng I forgot his name he's from Ghana we're thinking about a blog in which we can all combine forces. Interesting. Um, a sort of African, basically Africans living in America and sort of, you know, um, the equivalent of something like, I don't know if you know, Crooked Timber, which is an American blog where a, a group of bloggers come together and talk about politics and sports and, and the arts. So, you know, through blogging, I sort of picked up uh, people along the way. Yeah. Maybe we could uh, relate uh, that whole question of uh, media and communication back to uh, uh, Africa and South Africa. You mentioned earlier the transformations in South Africa, the election of Nelson Mandela. In the period of the 80s, the anti-apartheid struggle was uh, marked by a very vibrant alternative media. And I wonder if you could comment uh, both about the current position of alternative media, what we could call alternative or popularly owned media, uh, but also the issue of such things as media monopolies and mergers, and maybe even to pick up this thread of blogging, what sort of new 
forms is communication taking such as through cell phones sms uh, and these sort of things in other words if we reach down to the township level uh, in south africa then what what are the what sorts of what forms is is, is mass communication taking i mean the the you know as you pointed out under apartheid ironically um, South Africa had a very vibrant alternative media, but this is again—it's a you know was a very recent phenomenon. It's very much a product of the mid to late 1980s, which coincides with the rise or the return, if you want, of popular movements that have been suppressed, roughly since the end of the 1960s, when there were communist party newspapers like the Guardian, the, I think it was called the New Age, uh, New Age, um, Root First, etc., and others. So in the 80s, you know, these newspapers emerged. It was somewhat artificial because they were heavily funded and sort of propped up by foreign funding, which as South Africa was changing, the foreign funding withdrew. And those newspapers where you had sort of more sort of journalists rather than propagandists were able to adjust uh, to the new circumstances more easily. So, for example, the papers that survived the end of apartheid, if you want the unbanning of the ANC, the free, uh, freeing Nelson Mandela, and in which the South African government, had, the apartheid government, had gained some legitimacy because, you know, they took credit for releasing Mandela and so on. So suddenly the, a lot of those newspapers, um, um, they, you know, they went out of circulation, they closed down. And, the, and as I said, the ones who survived were the ones who were more sort of practicing journalism, the Mail and Guardian, which is today the Mail and Guardian, the weekly mail. What then happened is that the the established media in South Africa, kind of the media of white, the white public sphere, quickly turned into almost a South African public sphere, and I put that in quotes, uh, and, and began to do the kind of reporting that the alternative press had done, but stayed inside their own, their commercial model. What, you know, the SABC, of course, the South African Broadcasting Corporation, became a public broadcaster, and, you know, of course, they succumbed to other presses later on, but they had sort of a Prague Spring at that point also. This is kind of early to mid-1990s, and that media, I think, sort of stabilized, but stabilized after a period of questioning its own function, particularly during the period of the TRC, when they also, when word came out about their own role under apartheid, and they began to more critically, and the TRC was kind of an interesting moment where they actually reported about black people and their suffering and in detailed terms humanized them, but that passed. The response to that has been that the Mail and Guardian became like those other established newspapers. It just became a newspaper. And to fill the gap, uh, the, the, these, these uh, people felt still that no one was catering to the black, the mass, you know, the, the majority of the population being black South Africans. No one was catering to them. And once again, the commercial media stepped up and they created tabloids. What about the more experimental media of, say, cell phone and cell phone cameras and SMS? And... South Africa has really adopted the cell phone Zupi, with there's, fervor. Yeah, there's something called Zupi where you, people post. It's sort of a South African YouTube, which is, could be interesting. There are now people who are on YouTube. There's, a, there's you know vloggers. They call themselves vloggers. There's a South African um, vlogger who's, who's gotten some notoriety and fame on YouTube. People are work. This, the SMS thing particularly was around football. Kaiser Chiefs and Orlando Pirates um, sort of tapped into the, would the be soccer market, for soccer listeners. for American <laughs> listeners. Um, I think the more, Kenya has been more interesting on SMS, and the last election was very interesting. When the government shut down the state media, um, people used, you know, blogging, which is a very small percentage of the population, and the Berkman Center at Harvard has documented some of this. But they've used SMS 
commenting on the election, sending around messages about protests and so on. Um, but I also, you know, I haven't heard as much of that kind of developments happening in South Africa. I think in South Africa, it's still, blogging is still sort of, people treat it like it's sort of old media. It's, not Im- it's still not very immediate. Let's pick up the question of sport and the media then because South Africa will be hosting the World Cup of Soccer in just a few years. To what extent is the broadcast of popular sport uh, open and free or is it becoming more like countries in the north such as the US, Western Europe, Australia uh, where big corporations like uh, News Corporation, Rupert Murdoch have very deftly seize control of the broadcast of uh, very popular uh, sporting uh, events and then use that to go further and build a political empire in the media. What's the situation in South Africa? And, and Peter Ledge is probably, res- I know he's done some work on this, but the SABC, as it's got sort of gutted, you know, the, the government is spending less money on, on public broadcasting. The SABC, to some extent, has been forced to go elsewhere for, you know, to fund programming, and one of the things, one of the recent and disappointing developments is that football, South African, the Premier League, which is the the the, um, the top football league in South Africa, the SABC lost the rights to show the the games to Mnet, and Mnet is a subscriber-based um, like uh, platform. It's like cable, and so unfortunately, you know, less and less people won't be able to see the PSL, which is the Premier Soccer League in South Africa. The ru- rugby as a as a popular sport also it's 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 already exclusively on Mnet the, na- the national team, the games of the um, uh, so what they call the Super 14, which is a as, uh, you know as you know the Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa playing a, in almost a like of an NFL of right, rugby. Right, uh, NFL of rugby. Um, that's also shown mm-hmm. on on Mnet. Uh, it's only certain kind of lower level competitions that don't have the same kind of appeal are shown on the public. Uh, broadcaster. So you see the same pattern as you point out that's happening in Britain, that's happening in Australia, has happened in South Africa. Um, the, the SABC has been under attack um, that they, some people felt they didn't have the political will, that the current managers of the SABC did not have a, the political will to hold on to football um, and keep it as a, you know, sort of a public pastime. What will happen probably is what happens here. If you can't afford cable, you'd have to go to a pub. Um, and because the pub has to buy the cable, you know, like happens particularly in, in Britain, uh, where you have to watch the, you know, the program in a pub, and the pub is paying for the cable, and the pub is, you know, in order for it to cover its overhead, it's charging you on mm. food and beer. So it will be interesting what happens with that. And and some of the things that have happened, Mnet, for example, Super Sport, they started Super Sport cafes. So you have to now go pay to watch. Hope at some point you're probably going to have to watch. Supersport is the main satellite provider for, yeah. in South Africa and in the rest of Africa, actually. That's yeah. correct. So, so you see the same privatization processes taking place uh, in sport as well. Of course, I've heard the other side of the argument, which is that SABC did a very poor job of broadcasting football. Uh, for those folks who like to speak of things in these terms, the critics say, you know, the product that SABC put out was actually very low quality, and Supersport uh, does a much better job, in my opinion, of, of broadcasting football, of presenting it, whether it's the announcing, whether it's the number of cameras, the accuracy of the replays and statistics and so on. So, you know, the, the, there are other sides to the argument that, that have been made, but it's absolutely true that in terms of access to the big games, 
um, it, it has diminished for a large swath of the population. But for those who have access to satellite television, I think uh, the, the, the South African football is going to look a lot better. Yeah, and, no, and again, that's it's, correct. This, it's, yeah. it's this yeah. bifurcated development you see in South Africa, where if you're an insider and you're locked into these processes of change in a positive way, um, it looks pretty good. But if you're shut out of them, you're an outsider, uh, then you seem to be forgotten. And that's, in a way, also the story of globalization in many respects. I mean, that, that's correct. Like, my, I, just was in, I was in South Africa in June and saw some of the matches on Supersport. The quality looks better. The commentating is better. The studio discussions, I mean, it looks sort of like ESPN, very slick. They, they have all the former footballers, Dr. Kamalo, et cetera, in the studio. Um, you know, the, the, as, as opposed to the SABC, where it's, um, as you point out, the presentation does not live up to it. So there, as you're right, there is another side um, to, the, to the process. The downside, unfortunately, is that, you know, the football in South Africa is the most affordable sport. It's kind of a mass sport. It's the way in which people, yeah, I think, relate to basketball um, or or American football. It's the sport of the poor and the masses. And if it's going to become more and more expensive, I mean, it, it you know, as the game the game in England, for example, where see, you know, it becomes more expensive to go to the stadium. You need Sky to watch it. So that it might be, it will be interesting to see what happens there. But the upside, once again, if you're middle class and you like the game and you want, you know good presentation and you want a comfortable seat and so on, definitely it's going to look better. Yeah. Maybe we could uh, also consider the political realm and you have edited a fine book on South African President Thabo Mbeki and I might add that on the SABC, of course the SABC under Mbeki is being chronically underfunded and when I interviewed the previous chairperson Eddie Funde, he made the point that uh, there was very little money uh, and so that projects needed to be self-funded. So you could apply that also to sport. But I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit about the, uh, if you like, the level of freedom of uh, media in, in South Africa. Uh, at the last ANC conference uh, a few months ago, um, there was criticism of the way in which the South African Broadcasting Corporation had, first of all, uh, covered the conference, which had been very pro Mbeki, and then following his defeat by Jacob Zuma, there was uh, continuing criticism about uh, appointments to the governing board of the SABC. So um, we might talk a little bit more about Zuma later, but I wonder how, how do you um, analyse the state of the media in South Africa given the power of the presidency? And do you think that the fr uh, freedom of the media is increasing or is it stable or is it decreasing? What, what's your take on all these questions? I mean, in general, I think it's a function of the robustness of democracy. And, you know, the sort of favorite um, South African phrase from the sort of early 90s that it's a, a terrain of struggle, that the media is a terrain of struggle, if you want to use that metaphor in which there are these different forces, you know, contending. I think generally South African media is very free you know, they're protected by laws and the Constitution. And unlike under apartheid, you can call the president a womanizer and say all kinds of things. And the next morning, there's no soldier or police at your door, you know, arresting you. This is, you know, peop the, I think at that level, the, the, the freedom that journalists enjoy are, you know, it's, it's markedly different from under apartheid. Um, the, as I said, in the early, if you compared to the beginnings, the SABC did try to, 
to fulfill its public mandate, but increasingly, as you rightly point out, um, the SABC has become under pressure from sort of elements within the ruling party, particularly in its news only. And again, when people talk about the SABC being subjected to pressure from the ruling party and the government, that's mainly happening on the news side of the SABC. There are more other interesting things happening, the kind of documentaries that appear on the SABC or dramas, kind of social dramas, whether it be relating to youth or to you know education, like Izo Izo. Um, is a popular Kaslam, yeah, on yeah. television in South Africa. Popular, dra yeah. popular drama in South Africa is very interesting. I mean, s sometimes it underwrites, of course, or reflects um, certain ideologies of the new South Africa, like the Rainbow Nation or black economic empowerment, which is the government policy to deal with sort of racial inequality in people's access to the, to, you know, to the economic mainstream. Um, but I, you know, there's a lot of diversity around that, but I think it's mainly on the side of politics and in terms of news content and so on, that there's been that uh, kind of pressure. And yes, indeed, I mean, the, the current um, board is, quite, is a very contentious process because they are appointed by the president, and the South African president, Tabumbeki, has been much more, I think, than Nelson Mandela, being sort of hands-on and trying to, I um, mean, the accusation has been that he wants to control everything that comes out of the presidency. He even had a, a book written about him, um, you know, to sort of defend, I suppose, his legacy and so on. Um, and to the extent where people say, for example, critical uh, reports on his AIDS policies or his utterances about the origins of AIDS, that that's not reported on the SABC. Um, you know, that, so that, and as you point out, the Zuma, the way that when, when the deputy president of South Africa was booed in KwaZulu-Natal, um, there was some story about that the, uh, the SABC's news managers did not want to cover that. But my sense, I think, is, again, you know, Mbeki lost at the ANC conference in in uh, Limpopo, the next day you heard that those very people who were in a very strong position at the SABC while Mbeki was president of the ANC and sort of, you know, had lots of power, suddenly they were in a much less secure position. So, you know, questions about the uh, Snukizi Kalala, who's at the general, I think the general manager of news, as well as the CEO of the SABC, Dali Mpofo, who are all rumored to be very close to Tabo Mbeki, or Christine Kunta, who's on the board, Suddenly, their positions weren't secure, so much secure anymore. So I'm just saying, you know, these things are these are terrains of struggle. They can change, um, but I, for me, I think it's a very different kind of media. Um, I think it's it's South Africans don't know what democracy, you know, they never lived in a democracy. This is what they're experiencing, and it's robust, you know, and they they should fight for their space. I mean, I think that that's for me the way I read it. I'd like to go back to the subject of African bloggers, uh, Sean. Um, in your opinion, have African bloggers changed the media landscape on the continent uh, and perhaps beyond? And, and if so, how have they done that? Or how are they doing that at this time? I think that, you know, my, the sort of short answer is no. I think that in Africa, it's still very much old media because of cost of internet access, for example, I heard a number quoted in the recent crisis in, you know, the current crisis in Kenya, that the blogging is like 3% of the, of the Kenyan sort of media, you know, landscape. And mostly it was SMS. It was the use of SMS that had a much bigger role in people putting on, you know, uh, compressing video files and, and sending them out that way and um, sending them to the BBC where the BBC would put it on its website and so on. So I think it's blogging is still very much restricted to South Africa. Uh, 
where again it's restricted to to a small part of the population, primarily white, um, to people who work and in their offices where they have access to the internet, and to North Africa, but that's you know people uh, blogging in Arabic. I think there's a lot of that. There's some. There's also bloggers in in Nigeria, but I would say generally it's still old media. It's very much still television. Radio that has more exposure and where people have streamed. Where there's been success, for example, sites like AfricanHipHop.com. Those are sites that are situated, for example, in Holland, in the Netherlands, and they rely on content often from by Africans, and then they would serve as a halfway house to send it back out. Interesting. Um, and a lot of the bloggers now, I mean, many of the bloggers that I come across who blog about Africa are based in the United States, at colleges, college professors, college students. Um, this is, as I said, again, outside of South Africa. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical about the impact of African bloggers in Africa. I think they might have more of an impact. This is why also the way I pitched Leo Africanas, because I felt um, in that kind of insta-pundit insta way of sort of responding on the spot to things that are happening, you'd probably have more success in influencing a debate in the United States or in Britain and for those listeners who want to visit uh, your website and, and read your blog, where can they go? They go to uh, um, theleoafricanas.com. So it's, it's HTTP uh, colon forward slash forward slash theleoafricanas.com. Okay, well, thank you very much, uh, Sean. And uh, please visit Leo Africanus on the web. And thank you. Thank you very much. At this point in the program, we advertise certain events taking place on campus and beyond. And the first one I want to tell you about is a symposium and reception for Professor Piero Dagbovi's new book entitled The Early Black History Movement, Carter Woodson and Lorenzo Johnston Green, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2007. And this symposium and reception is taking place on Wednesday, February 27th, 6 to 8 p.m. in the Kellogg Center Auditorium in East Lansing, Michigan. It is free and open to the public, so please join us. Comments will be provided by several distinguished scholars of African-American history, including Professor Darlene Clark-Hine of Northwestern University and several others. Co-sponsors for this program include the African and African-American Studies Program, the Office for Inclusion and Intercultural Initiatives, the Black Faculty, Staff, and Administrators Association, the Department of History, the Comparative Black History PhD Program, the Department of English, and the College of Arts and Letters. The second event I want to tell you about is part of the MSU film series. On Thursday, February 28th, the film Drum from South Africa will be shown at the Residential College's Snyder Phillips Theater at 7.30 p.m. This is also free and open to the public. This is a good film, uh, won the first prize for best film at the 2005 Festbaco Festival in Burkina Faso, which is Africa's premier film festival. And the film Drum tells the story of Henry Kumalo's journalistic exposés about the South African apartheid regime's darkest secrets in the pages of Drum, the first magazine in South Africa aimed at a black readership. To expose the appalling conditions of black farm workers, he gets a job on a farm where workers are treated brutally. He then gets himself arrested so that he can report on the conditions of black prisoners in apartheid's jails. For more information about Africa events on campus, go to africa.msu.edu.
Well, that brings today's program to a close. Please join us in two weeks when we will speak with Foluogundimu, professor of journalism at MSU, about press, politics, and governance in Nigeria. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and Chris Johnson.